Uh, I hope we all have a um, now even more, even clearer sense of, our, of that need, uh, that need for Christ. And we certainly have that need as we come to His Word. Uh, we should never come to the Bible casually, lightly, as if we don't need uh, the help of Almighty God to understand it, to hear it, to respond to it. And so let's do that uh, now. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, these 66 books given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We believe, uh, as your word tells us, that all scripture is breathed out by God, the very product of your breath, your word to us. It is life-giving it is truthful, it is reliable, it is trustworthy in the whole and every little part. And so, Father, as we come to uh, this portion of your word, we pray that you would open it to us by your Spirit, that through the weakness of the one who speaks, that the living Christ would speak and would preach truth to his people, that everyone here would be very clear that what they have encountered is rather a who, that they have encountered the living God, that we would bow before Him, that we would submit to you, to your word, that we would realize that you are inescapable and that we must deal with the living God, the one who has made Himself known in His Son. So, Lord, we come thankfully and dependently to your word and ask that you would open it to us, make it clear to us, uh, build us up where we need to be built up, tear down the things that need to be torn down in us, and have your way with us as your people, uh, those bought with the blood of Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this is uh, week two of a six-week series of sermons on the church. We're asking, uh, what is the church? That is, what does the Bible say about the church? How is Jesus at work in the church? What is the nature, the character of his ongoing work in the church? What has he called the church to do? What's our mission in the world? We're doing this because it, it's in Christ, two things are true. It is in Christ that we understand the, the meaning of our individual lives, but it's also true that it's in Christ that we understand our life together, uh, our identity and our purpose as the church of God in this world. And it's in Christ then that we come to know the joy and the purpose of, of belonging to one another, right? Together, belonging to Christ, and so we belong to one another. And what we saw last week as we began this series is very simply but profoundly that Jesus loves His church. That's crucial for us to understand. You cannot see the church rightly and engage with the church rightly unless you understand that Jesus loves His church, that He loves her with a love that's self-sacrificial, that's sanctifying, that's steadfast. And Jesus loves His church, and that's who we are. There's a reason we began there, that if we're to understand the church ourselves, that we have to understand ourselves as those beloved by Christ, okay? Now, as we move on today, 
What I want us to see from Scripture is that this Jesus who loves His church is also the Jesus who is now building His church. Now, as we say that, as we think about Jesus building His church, uh, you may, some of you, I, I imagine, are, your minds are immediately drawn to Jesus' words in Matthew 16 as He speaks to Peter and to the disciples with this promise, I will, what, build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We could look at a text like that, or we could look elsewhere in Scripture for this image of Jesus building His church, His, His continuing active presence with His church. And yet here in 1 Peter 2, I think as a text that's particularly helpful because Peter describes the church-building work of Jesus in really vivid imagery. And it's really vivid imagery that draws together the message of the whole Bible into one focused exhortation to these Christians who were living in really perilous times in the first century. So let's give our attention to this text and uh, consider in it uh, not only the pictures that Peter gives us, but how we are to enter into the reality that those pictures present, okay? So let's listen to God's Word. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to Him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, as as Peter describes the ongoing church-building work of Jesus Christ, He does so with vivid imagery. He does so with pictures, word pictures that he creates or rather largely draws from the Old Testament. In fact, as Peter paints this picture of our identity as God's people, it's a great example of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. The Bible, you see, is a a unit. The Bible is one redemptive story from the beginning to to the end. In the beginning... We read about God's good creation, about Adam and Eve being made to have fellowship with God, to love Him, to to live in His love, enjoying Him, serving Him. But in their rebellion against God, they were cut off from God. They broke fellowship with 
the holy God through their own unholy rebellion. And they didn't do that just for themselves because since Adam was our representative, we find in the New Testament, for instance, in Romans 5, that as a result of the one man's sin, the many came under condemnation, that we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And the rest of the Bible, of course, from Genesis 3.15 on to the end is about God's provision for his sinful people. And the pictures that Peter employs here, he shows us how the Old Testament promises of God are all fulfilled and focused on the person and the work of Jesus. And the way he does that, in addition to three direct quotations from the Old Testament, is allusions that are everywhere in the passage to the Old Testament. So Peter's giving us pictures and images, realities that we can meditate on that will help us to remember who we are as believers, who we are as the church. Now, what's the first? This first picture you find in verse 5, he says that we as the church are living stones being built up into a spiritual house or as a spiritual house. He points back here to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 16, and the promise of God to lay a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not, will not be put to shame. God was promising to build a house, to create a place where He and His people would live together forever where He would reign over them as their God, and they would live joyfully and obediently as His people. And Peter sees that this promise was fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus was, was rejected and crucified, and we've seen that throughout Mark's gospel as we've been in it for these last months. But God raised Him from the dead because He had chosen Him and had chosen to lay him as the cornerstone of this great building project called the church. So what was the significance of the Old Testament temple? Well, it was the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the place where God dwells with His people. It's the place where God comes in glory to live in the midst of His people. But when you get to the New Testament, you don't find the Old Testament temple replaced with a New Testament structure, but you find that Jesus Himself is the temple. Jesus in John 1 is the one who tabernacled among us, who became in the flesh the dwelling place of God with man. And then you find that those who are in Jesus Christ are also the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. And that's the imagery that Peter's using here to say to the church, you are the house of God. You are the house that He is building for His glory in this world. You are the place where He has been pleased to come down and in His glory dwell in the midst of human weakness to make His name great. You are that house. You are God's building project. The quote on the front of your bulletin says in in a resting way, God's architecture is biological. God is building with human beings, with living stones. You, Peter says, are the true house of God. So I was reflecting on this this week. I couldn't help but remember uh, from my childhood growing up in the church how often I would hear people call the church the house of God. Now, generally, they were referring to the church building. 
And usually that was a way of getting us kids to obey, right? Stop running in God's house. That's a great trump card, right? <laughs> uh, it's interesting implications. God doesn't like running. Um, but at any rate, there's something right about that phrase, but there's also something misleading about that phrase. Because you see, this building is not God's house. There's no building that's God's house. What Peter is saying very pointedly is that you are God's house. Collectively, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll say elsewhere in his letters that that's true of each individual Christian as well, that you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so it matters what you do with your body. But here Peter is speaking collectively to the church throughout the world, wherever the name of Jesus is confessed, you, the people of God, are His house. You are His dwelling place. You are His temple. All that was signified by the tabernacle and the temple has now reached its fulfillment, not consummation yet, but it's reached its destination point in part in you. God dwells among you, Peter says. After all, as the New Testament makes clear, Stephen in Acts 7, Paul in Acts 17, God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. God cannot be contained in some building, whether a temple mount in Jerusalem or any other place. All of that was just placeholder to to hold uh, the people's attention until the day when Jesus, the Lamb of God, would come, bringing God's dwelling place among His people and then making us His house, His temple amazing. So, Peter is saying that we are God's house. We're living stones being built up as a spiritual house. God lives in our midst. Now, that's remarkable, not in a physical way. God is… maybe you're teaching your children, God does not… God is a spirit and does not have a body like we do. But God, by His Holy Spirit, because of the work of Jesus Christ, lives in our midst. We are His house. And Jesus is making it so. He's building us up into a spiritual house. You know, it's interesting. The church is pretty unimpressive for the most part, right? There's nothing to the outside world. Most people in this world don't even know that you exist, Most people in this world have never heard of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Athens and never will. And that could be said of to any group of Christians assembled for worship today, anywhere in the world. You're very inconspicuous. We all are. And from the outside looking in, the church is not all that. I mean, think about it. We, We meet together once a week and we worship God and we have time together during the week. Uh, We have time in our families during the week, we're in the Word, we're in prayer, we try to repent of sin and trust in Jesus, but from the outside perspective, there's not a lot that goes on that's tremendously impressive. And yet, though our curb appeal may be low, it's the most amazing house you've ever seen because it's living, it's growing. Jesus is building it up one stone after another, wedging you alongside some other living stone, and sometimes that's uncomfortable and uh, leads to free, pieces have to be chiseled away, but one body at a time, one life at a time, as uh, unbelievers come to faith in Christ and are added to the building, and as those who are already there are, are sanctified and grow in maturity, the, the house is being built up. Jesus is building it up. Why? For His 
for the glory of His Father, for the dwelling place of God in this world. Because God has been pleased to do that. Because God has said, I want to live with you. I want you to live with me. I want you to know me and be known by me. I want to shine through you so that the light of my glory is seen in the world through you. That's who you are. So Peter is saying, this is who you are. And you know what? Who we are is still not realized fully because all of this points to the end of the Bible, the end of the story, Revelation 21, which tells us that there's a day coming, and Hal's going to preach on this text in a few weeks to finish this series, but tells us that there is a day when just climactically the whole host of God's people shouts out in praise, at last, the dwelling place of God is with man. He has come. He has done it. What you are, who we are now together is just a taste, but a real taste of that day. That's what Jesus is doing, building us up, us here in Athens and the church everywhere around the world, building us up so that at that last day, all of us shout out together, He has done it. He is here. He is with us. That's what you are. That's what you point to. Your very existence points to the fact that God has come down and that He is making His dwelling place among you. Now, look, that's why Peter says it's so important the way we live. He says it in verses 1 and 2 and 11 and 12, which we didn't read. He says it elsewhere in the letter. But precisely because you are the house of God is why your growth and grace, your holiness is so important. If you are a Christian and you have not been thinking very much about the details of your life and whether it's pleasing to God and whether it honors Him, if your personal holiness and ours collectively together is not a great priority for you, then you have forgotten. Peter is saying you have forgotten who you are. You would not walk through the temple courts and find garbage on the ground. You would not walk into the Holy of Holies and find garbage piling up. Why? Because it doesn't belong where God dwells. The same is true for us. There are things in our lives that don't belong in the place where God dwells. And that's why Peter is saying so emphatically, my dear friends, you are the house of God. Jesus is building you up into the spiritual house. You are the dwelling place of God. So live like the dwelling place of God. Live as those in whom the glory of God dwells. But there's also a second picture. We find it in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Peter's, I mean, really, he's copying and pasting from the Old Testament. And here from Exodus 19, which we read from earlier. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the, the God who owns the whole earth, 
That's what he says about himself. The whole earth is mine. The God who owns the whole earth is going to make you his treasured possession. That's incredible. The God who owns the whole earth is going to make you his treasured possession and to make you a kingdom of priests, a whole kingdom full of priests. What does that mean? It means sacrifice and holiness. It means praise and holiness. It means that through you, God is going to advance His kingdom to the ends of the earth and make all of the earth the holy place where He dwells. Incredible. In Christ, Peter is saying, God has made us His treasured possession. In Christ, God has chosen us as a new… You know, the Christian, the Christian church is a whole new race of people, one that's not determined by color of skin or ethnicity or background or whatever, but by Christ, a new race of people, a new family who belong to God through Jesus Christ, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are His, and He is ours. And Peter is saying, this also is who you are. Now, you forget that, don't you? I mean, that's why else would, why else would Jesus send preachers to tell you these things? Because we forget. You get caught up in the struggles of this life. You forget who you are as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, part of the struggle that eventually you have to admit is you can't have a consistent, coherent answer to that question, who am I? We forget who we are. We get caught up in the problems and struggles of life. If you know these things, that you forget to bring them out of the attic or off the cabinet, out of the cabinet and use them in daily life. You become bitter, you become impatient, you become afraid, you become worried, angry, so forth, because you forget who you are. We collectively forget who we are. We forget what God has done for us. And so, this morning, again, another opportunity to repent of that, to to say, I need you every hour. Will you come? Will you remind me what you're doing in my life, in our life? Help me not to be so narrow-sighted and nearsighted. Help me to see the glory of what you're doing, of who I am, who we are together. Help me to live in light of that. So these are the pictures that Peter gives us. But then the question is, how do, how do I enter into that reality, either for the first time or how do I continue to lay hold of it? And Peter answers the question very simply, very plainly. He just simply says, as you come to Him. You see that? As you come to Him, verse 4. We enter into the enjoyment of these promises and gifts only by coming to Christ, by coming to Him. You don't do that once or twice or five times or 50 times, but all the time, always coming to Him. So the question that I've got to ask, among others, is have you? Every one of you here this morning, have you come to Him? Are you coming to Him? Some people stay away from Christ because they think they don't need Him. Some people stay away from Christ because they think they're too bad to have Him. But are you coming to Him? He's the one who says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you coming to Him? Are you coming to Him? You see, but what Peter says here is that you either come to the stone, verse 4, 
or you stumble over the stone, verse 8. But either way, it's you dealing with the stone that defines your life. Your response to Jesus is absolutely decisive about everything that you are and will be. You will either come to him or you will stumble over him, but you cannot escape him. You cannot. You cannot escape him. People, people, try, people everywhere, maybe even in this room this morning, are trying to escape Jesus. I don't want to deal with him right now. I want to deal with him in my way right now which is not dealing with him. That's rebelling against him. But you cannot escape him. You cannot get around him. He he always will butt up against your life. He will not leave you alone. His claims are universal, and they're constant, and they're absolutely authoritative, and they're loving, and they're redemptive. But he is the great stone rejected by many. Ah, Jesus, yeah, I've heard about him. He's not, whatever. If that's what you're into, that's fine. The world rejects Jesus. They, see, they don't think about him. They minimalize him. They marginalize him. They redefine him. But God has already done something. And whether or not you accept Jesus, it doesn't change who he is. God has already placed him as the cornerstone. And he is determining how that house is built. And he is determining the whole shape and course of human history. And he determines your life. Because how you respond to him determines everything. You fall At his feet, you come to him, you receive in him all honor and blessing, or you stumble over him and you're crushed by him. D.A. Carson has put it this way, God's plan includes a division of people around his son, this cornerstone rejected by so many. And the most important thing, both for this life and for the life to come, is to be living stones along with him in the temple of which he is the cornerstone. So again, are you? Are you a living stone? Have you been placed by Jesus into this great house that he's building? What a privilege. The greatest thing that could ever happen to you. But but is that true of you? Are you part of this house? Are you a living stone? If so, it's only because you've come to him. And if you've come to him, it's only because God has drawn you and has loved you and has done everything necessary to make you willing and able to come to Him and with Him and on Him and in Him to be built into this great house that He's building. See, Jesus, you see something here again about what the Father thinks about His Son. Jesus is chosen and precious to the Father. God, we have no idea how, how deeply the Father loves His Son. Jesus is chosen and precious to the Father. And He is intended to be, cho- to be precious to you as well, to us. To be infinitely valuable to you, more than anything else. Now, that's a searching question to be asked. Is Jesus more valuable to you than anything else? Well, in fact, Peter reminds us that all of this has, a, has a, a great purpose. You know, it's wonderful to hear who we are by virtue of the grace of God, a spiritual house being built up, a place where God's pleased to dwell in our midst. But that's not the end of the story. That's not even the goal. There's a greater goal. And Peter gives us 
a picture of what that great goal is. In verse 5, when he calls us a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God, and he points to it again in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why, why this spiritual house? Why is Jesus building his church up into a spiritual house for God? Not for us, but because all of your lives and all of your voices together with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the world would join together in this one huge, massive, mind-blowing chorus of praise to God. That's why. Jesus is building His church because His Father is wonderful and is deserving of praise, endless praise, coming from the lips and the lives of people who know that I was in darkness. I was dead. I was lost at enmity with God, and He rescued me. He pulled me out, not just out of darkness, but into what? His marvelous light, that you would proclaim His excellencies. You exist, we exist for Him, for His praise. That's the end. That's the goal. That's the purpose in all of this. See, what do priests do? Well, in the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices. Why? As types and shadows of the sacrifice to come, the sacrifice that has been offered once for all, unrepeatably, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So, what's left, right? What sacrifice is left? Praise. The living sacrifice of your whole life being laid upon the altar. God, I'm yours. I've been bought with a price. I don't belong to myself. My whole existence is for you. Edmund Clowney put it this way, he lifts us up so that we would lift him up. That's why God saves you. That's why Jesus builds his church, to lift you up so that you would lift him up. Not so that you would lift yourself up, not so that you would live for yourself. That's preposterous that God would lift you up out of your sin so that you could just remain in it. He's lifted us up that we would lift Him up. Well, those, those are the pictures that Peter gives us. Now, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. I don't know why a thousand uh, could be more. But these pictures are different. <laughs> Because these pictures are absolutely priceless. There's no way that any description, as wonderful as these pictures are, there's no way that they can capture and fully communicate to you and to me the absolute excellency of Jesus Christ, the, the, the perfection of His work, His love for His church, His active building of His church. But all of it puts to us this question again. Have you come to Him? Do you see who you are? Will you come to Him if you haven't? Have you been brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of God? If so, is that thrilling you? It won't all the time. You'll have to confess that to God. God, I, I have to confess to you. 
I've not been thrilled by your grace to me, and that's dangerous. Please forgive me. Please renew in me this marvel at your grace to me, a sinner. Please help me to be amazed again at the spiritual house that you're building with all these other messed up, flawed, living stones who are being crafted into this glorious house. Come to him and ask him. Maybe that's where you need to start today. But the purpose of all of this is that we would come to Him and that we would see God's infinite grace, His mercy, that would fill us, that that would renew us, that that would transform us, that that would make us useful to God in this world as His house. And in the end, to draw you to a place that Revelation 21, again, talks about where finally and forever You fall down at the feet of Christ, and you praise Him for the excellency of His person and His work to do forever what you were created to do, to worship and adore God and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for what You are doing. We thank You for purchasing us with Your blood. We thank You for building us up as a spiritual house for God, a place where God dwell. We can't comprehend this, Lord, that you would be willing to come so far down to live with us. And yet you have, and you've done it freely and graciously, not built on our efforts, but built completely on your free covenant purpose to love a people for yourself. So, Lord, you've done this amazing thing, and now we ask again that you would keep up that work that you've begun, that you would clean us out, that we would be a a clean house, that we would be uh, a people who love that we are your possession, that we would be a people who are full of praise to you, that we would be a people uh, in whom our neighbors can see something of the glory and grace of God in the face of Christ, our, our cornerstone. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Uh, if the elders who are helping with communion would would come forward. <clears throat>